Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode. You know I love true life Rocky stories, and this gentleman has a true life Rocky story, and I can't wait to delve into it. Um, But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, The number one sponsor is um, our book that just came out. It hit number one on um, Amazon twice for uh, substance abuse. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. If you'd like to check it out, it's on Amazon Kindle. And it's 1097, but all the proceeds go to help veterans struggling with PTSD and homelessness. So everything I, I get goes to help others. And the second person I'd like to thank is our, spon- our sponsor, Carrie Marie Beaver. She has a company called Soldier Girl Coffee. She's a female veteran struggling with PTSD, but decided not to let her keep her down. So she started her own coffee company and she hires nothing but veterans. And if you love coffee and if you love CBD, this, this actual, this one is actually snickerdoodle and it's CBD infused. So if you like CBD, if you like coffee, just write coffee below and um, I'll get you the information. So doc, what's going on, brother? Man, I am delighted to be here. I'm stoked. And just let me say, I love the title of your podcast because, as we may be talking about later, I love vertical momentum. You know, and I, and I love that. And um, well, we're, not, we're definitely going to talk about that because I have so, so many questions. <laughs> and, and, and just, to, you know, for, for you guys that are listening, um, you know, there's an old joke out there. Why jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Well, he's actually going to give the answer to that question later. But, Doc, where do you come from? You know, where did you grow up? And what kind of little boy was Kevin? Wow. So I was born in the Kansas City area. And I lived here most of my life. I, I, I went away for school for a little bit. And I lived in England for a while. And then... Uh, eventually, I, I came back here, uh, and while I was still a professor, and uh, you know, my my family, uh, I'm I'm kind of weird. I, I like genealogy and that sort of thing. So my family actually moved to Missouri between 1831 and 1866. So we've been here in this part of the world for a long time. Okay, now I'm, I have a lot of friends here in Kansas City. Um, I've been a closet Kansas City Chief fan. But from way back, go Chiefs. I mean, I'm talking even <laughs> before um, Joe Montana okay. played. So it's not. Hey, I'm not. I was. I'm not one of the new guys. I, I like. No, it. I was a. I was a baby the first time they won the Super Bowl, and I waited a long time for that next one to come. <laughs> so now, were you always good in sports? Were you? Uh, were you a like for me? Um, I came from an abused household, as people know, and books were my solace. So mm-hmm. yeah. big reader. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was, there are probably three things about me as a kid that have, that surfaced early and have continued all through my life. So one was, you know, I was a geeky kid and I loved uh, math and science. And I, I was in all the accelerated classes, and I started reading long before I was in school. Even my my personal library has over four thousand books, and 
And so I, you know, I love that. I, I got into computers and other geeky stuff back in the 70s. So, uh, you know, I was, and, and that's where I kind of first showed my entrepreneurial spirit by the early 80s. My first job on my friends, you know, they're, they're like mowing lawns and doing that sort of thing. I, I set, set out my shingle as a computer consultant. And so I was I was doing contract gigs for uh, coding work and and training people doing computer tutoring uh, as as a kid. So that was my very first job. And so that's one. I was geeky all the way around. And then second, I grew up performing. Um, you see my trombone behind me. Uh, my mom was a pianist and. Uh, I, I grew up music. I grew up acting. I grew up in front of audiences. I love that sort of thing. Uh, and the third thing is, I was always one of those kids that, even though I had an overprotective mother, uh, I, I was always finding ways to sneak out and try to do something daring. And for me, that meant climbing as high as possible and often jumping off, often with my homemade parachutes that didn't work very well. And so uh, all three of those things have continued all my life. Now, did you, what college did you go to and why did you pick that college and what did you pick as your major? Yeah, I did. So I did my undergraduate work at William Jewell College, which is a liberal arts college here in Liberty, Missouri, which is in the north suburbs of Kansas City, and and then at Oxford University in England, and Jewel has still has <clears throat> something called the Oxford Cambridge Honors Program, and so you get into Jewel, then you get into the program, then you get into one of the schools at Oxford Cambridge, and you do all of your classes as tutorials. And so it's just you and the professor and there's no one to hide behind and you've really got to know your stuff. And half of your college credit was done uh, for the class. But then at the end of your college career, in three weeks, you set six day long exams that are worth the other half of your college credit. So it's, it's pretty high stakes. But what that meant for me was when I went to go for my Ph.D., I was really used to the way you needed to study for comprehensive exams and, and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a remarkably wonderful preparation for what I wanted to do in my so life. So like um, I've had over now 400, 400 interviews with all high achievers, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, entrepreneurs, rangers, and it's amazing how in school, a lot of times you're the big fish, whether it's physically or you know mentally, you're, you're the big fish mm -hmm. in a small pond. Then all of a sudden you get into a place like Oxford, uh, Cambridge, um, you know, one of these big schools. And all of a sudden you're just a fish in a pond. And everybody, yeah. there's a lot of people that are either, you know, above you, I mean, way above you, or a lot of mm -hmm. people are just starting out on the equal playing field. So what was that like? Yeah. I loved it. I, I, you know, quite frankly, I loved it. It was, uh, you know, a, 
a massive amount of challenge and it was a challenge that I was looking for, you know, working on my doctorate. I, I did my PhD at the University of Missouri. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a big graduate program at the time. And I, I truly enjoyed those kinds of challenges. And, and one of the things that, that we have to understand is if you're going to live a good life, and that's really something that, that you know, it was a question that, okay, in my freshman first semester as an undergraduate in this program, we had two, two seminars that we had to take in the first semester that were weed out seminars. So there were like 21 of us went in and over a third of us were gone from the program by the end of that first semester. And so uh, one of them was structured around the question, it was classic Greek thought. And it was about the question, what is the good life? And, you know, the ancient Greeks often wrote about eudaimonia, the good life, and, and Plato and Aristotle and all these. And so I was really fascinated with that question. How do we live a good life? And as I went on in my career, by the time I'm in doing my graduate work in the 90s, then I'm, I'm looking at this and I think I'm interested in a little more refined version of the question. How do we live a good life when we're stuck with something really bad that we can't get away from? So why do some people succeed or fail under difficult circumstances? So I started doing that research in the 90s. And, you know, as we'll, we'll find out here later, you know, I, I live with multiple sclerosis. And that was kind of a long journey along the way. But after I was diagnosed in, in 2006, I morphed that question a little bit and it became, well, how can we live a good life when we're stuck with an illness that we're never going to get away from? All because... right. So let's, since you go, you went there, let's go there. Um, sure. Take me back. Cause I know you can, I know, you know, you can take me back to that moment when you either received that phone call or when you talked to that doctor, when the mm -hmm. diagnosis came, what was that moment and the days leading up to that moment like? Yeah, so I had been living with weird off and on symptoms for 17 years by this point, since 1989. And I had never gotten a good diagnosis. And this is actually not unusual for multiple sclerosis because it's a difficult thing to diagnose and especially you know over 30 years ago where we didn't have the diagnostic capabilities we have now and at the time they weren't really looking for ms in someone around 20 years old and and now we know that that it's actually a lot more common for the symptoms to start showing up around that time. But back then, they didn't think so. So I was uh, diagnosed with depression and uh, just kind of left to my own devices because they said it was treatment resistant. So I would have these weird symptoms off and on for, for 
you know, all these years beforehand. Finally, one morning in 2002, I woke up with a different symptom. I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. It was completely numb. I thought I'd overdone my workout the day before and pinched a nerve, so I didn't really think a lot about it at the time. And a few days later, my leg was back to normal. And then it was gone again. And then it was back. And then it was gone. And then it was other body parts. And finally, I woke up one morning and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body had disappeared. And at that point, my then wife said, I'm putting my foot down. You're going to get this looked at. And that kicked off a comedy of medical errors, where at one point they said, you'll be glad to know it's not multiple sclerosis. And then we got some better tests. And my neurologist comes in one day and he slumps down in front of me and he looks so dejected and he says, I am so sorry. There's no doubt it's multiple sclerosis and it's been with you for a long time. And truthfully, my first reaction at that time was relief because at least now I had a name for this beast that had been invading my life for all these years. And if I had a name for it, then I could learn about it and I could strategize and I, I could be proactive and engage somehow and, and really start working to try to build buffers against it. All right. So now, because um, as people know that follow me, um, you know, I did everything I could become the ultimate soldier until I got hurt on duty and lost my vision. And you can't see, you can't shoot, so we don't need you. And they medically discharged me. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I go from being Sergeant Kaufman to not knowing who Richard is, not knowing mm -hmm. who I am, and eventually having to reinvent and reimagine my life. So what was it like when you get home? and you're in your quiet time. And, you know, like they say, sometimes you don't need to be alone because, you know, when you start getting in your own headspace, it can get yeah. kind of, there's people that you don't want to meet up there. So yeah. what was that like when it finally came to the realization and you're like, oh shit, I got this. Now what do I do? You know, to begin with, that, that wasn't my so-called come to Jesus moment. You know, it was it happened a few years later because at the time I had little kids. My then wife was also dealing with her weird, undiagnosed medical condition. And, and she was obviously dying. I mean, it was, you know, because you've seen this, you know what people are like when they're fading away. And we couldn't get a good diagnosis and she was getting worse. And I was the only source of income for a family of four with two little kids. And so I was overworking myself, managing a large academic department and teaching at least 11 classes a year, every year while I was doing it and trying to do my research and all this other stuff. So I was so swamped that I didn't really give myself a lot of consideration and and i paid for it later because i was so worn down from years of that and then finally 
you know, at the last instant, she got a diagnosis of a hormone-secreting chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, a kidney cancer, really advanced, late stage three. And they did a radical surgery on her and they said, you're cured. It took her about a year or so to get close to normal again. And during this time, my MS is doing pretty well. And so we thought, oh, okay, life is going to be, you know, back on track again. And the kids are getting older. And so I had been putting off my plans to leave the academy. I'd been a professor for 15 years by this time. And I was going to leave the academy to become a tech entrepreneur. Because remember, I had that entrepreneurial streak all the way from the time I was a kid. And I did. I developed this technology out of my research. And I wanted to get it out into the market. So we decided that this was now a good time and I should pursue that dream. So I get out. Now, we have no safety net whatsoever. And suddenly, I am struck with the worst exacerbation my MS ever delivered to me. It was a massive right frontal temporal lesion. So suddenly, my higher cognition is just out the door. And I'm a brain guy. I make my living with my brain. And and suddenly it wasn't working. And my emotions were all over the place. So emotional regulation problems and all of this. And I got profoundly depressed. And my 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 then wife and my kids decided that I wasn't going to get better. And this was not a journey they could continue on with me and they left and so now i'm alone my my cognition is completely gone my symptoms are just right at the depths Um, my career is blown up my family is blown up and and then my dog suddenly died and it was bloat Uh, and and if anybody has big dogs they know what this is. And, and it happened late on a Sunday night. And we tried to save him at the doggy ER and, and couldn't. And, and that was literally the last living connection that I was hanging on to in this world. And I gave up. So, so for me, that, that real stark staring mortality in the face moment didn't happen with the diagnosis. It happened a few years later when the symptoms got overwhelming and all the fallout happened. You know, and I can totally, well, not physically, but mentally, you know, my bottom moment was I'm sitting and I'm drunk, still hung over. <clears throat> and I'm looking at, you know, five years in prison and I'm sitting in a in a church, in an AA meeting, hungover, eating nasty co- cookies, drinking stale coffee, being like, "How did I get here? And mm-hmm. where do I go from here? Because I can't get any worse. Things can't get any worse. So, what were you, you know what what was your next step when you actually sat there? You're you're alone because your kids aren't there. Your wife's not there. To, dog just passed and you're all alone and and you're like all right something's got to change i'm well it can't get any worse yeah 
I mean, because I, literally I had come to the point where I could no longer see a path from the life that was in front of me to a life I was interested in living. I just, I couldn't see a way. But I kept fixating on something my son, who was then about 14 or so, uh, said to me before he left. And he said, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of a cheeky thing for a teenager to say. But on the other hand, no father wants to hear that from a son. And, yeah. uh, and you know, and I, I tell everybody, you know, you have to take part in your own recovery, you know, no matter yeah. what it is. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of friends that are doctors and they say a lot of their patients just come in. Hey, just give me a pill. And they're like, it doesn't work that way. You know, right. lasting, lasting change doesn't work that way. You have to put in the work. So, exactly. what, kind of, so what did you well, do? Well, and I was so, uh, I was, I was kind of doubly, uh, you know, in my depths because, you know, on the one hand, I had gotten to this place and, and yeah, I'd, I had, uh, reflecting on what he had said, it was, yeah, you know, I had to look back and I had probably hadn't done anything just for myself in over a decade. So he probably had never seen me do anything for myself. And, and I had, I had kicked the can down the road, excusing it with, oh, I got to do this for my family, or I got to do this for, you know, whatever it was. And, and I knew better than that. I've got all the education in the world. I've got a PhD in people. I knew that was the wrong thing to do. So I decided I was going to give myself one more chance. And I was going to be humble in the world again. I, I needed to be humble because I had spent so many years always being the expert in the room, always being the professor, always being the expensive consultant that came in with the answers. And, and I had to admit that my condition had taken me to a place where I had to rebuild myself from ground zero. You know, like and the great author and thespian Roddy Piper once said, once you think you have all the answers, life changes the questions. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And MS as a condition is like that, too, because it is so variable and capricious and it changes all the time. So. So I went, you know, I, I looked to my research and I, I decided two things. One, I was going to save myself through science and skydiving and which sounds like a weird combination but for me the science was about all this research i'd been doing for all these years and it was about pulling together all these techniques to to handle cognitive and behavioral and social and environmental change so that i could improve myself again and so I could rebuild myself. And the second thing was, I was going to do something that was just for myself, that there was no logical, external reason to do. And that was skydiving. Because I had wanted to be a skydiver from the time I was a little kid in the 70s. I started the training the first time back in the 90s. And 
I did the training and I got a handful of jumps in and, and was working on my license. And then a lot of life got in the way. And then eventually my MS got so bad that I thought I, I gave up the idea of ever going back to it because I can't feel my legs below my knees. And I have a difficult time controlling my body all the time. And you've got to be able to control yourself in free fall. And you got to be able to stand up a landing. And I so see that because, you know, I've had a lot of friends, you know, they they were Army Rangers. And uh -huh. you know, after so many jumps, I mean, you know, now they're in, in their 50s, 60s mm -hmm. and their, their knees are shot to hell. Um, they've mm -hmm. had some you know, ACL, PCLs, MCL injuries. But you yep. have MS, so it's a little bit different trying to figure out how to stick the landing without breaking. Yeah. Your so how well, how did the process go about you know having to uh, relearn and learn the proper way to not get hurt? Yeah. So there were a couple of things. One, I can PLF like a boss. PLF's a parachute landing fall. So it turns out that for a fifty-something guy, I am remarkably bouncy. <laughs> go limp. <laughs> and, and But what I had to learn was, even though I can't feel my feet when they touch down, I could, I had to learn to, to deal with the signals my body was giving me. And I do have consistent feeling at my knees. So I learned to feel the pressure at my knees when my feet touch down. And, and that was how I was able to, to do that. But the bigger challenge was not standing up a landing. The bigger challenge was learning how to stay stable in free fall. Because when your legs are out of balance, then you're, you start spinning around radically in free fall and tumbling and out of control. So... What I had to do was I had to do a lot of extra training on the ground. Normally, it takes you 25 jumps to get your A license, your first license in skydiving. It took me 47. And I had to do a lot of extra training on the ground. And I had to spend a lot of time in vertical wind tunnels with instructors right there holding my legs in the right position so that I could learn how to feel the tension in the tendons behind my knee and understand what my leg and my foot were doing based on the signals I was getting there. So now, like I said, um, we've talked and, you know, I've read your book, which I love. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You know, you've had 600 plus jumps. Mm -hmm. Now talk to us about, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, because I mean, I am, I am a Christian. So I, I can only imagine what it must be like. You know, I don't know how long it takes from, you know, from when you jump out of the plane to when you land. But at some point, there must be some point when you're looking around and be like, man, this is beautiful up here. You know, I, I wish I could stay up here. What is it yeah. like actually jumping out of plane? Once you get, you know, get your bearings and everything. What is it? What is those couple minutes like? You know, it's it's amazing. It it is the most beautiful, transcendental, mindful experience I can imagine. Because what people have to understand is fear and anxiety are inside the plane. And you know, that door opens for the first time and your eyes get big and the wind is 
pushing through the cabin and there's this bright light there and you're like, oh my gosh, we are really, really high up here and I'm going to go through that door. <laughs> and, but then once you go through that door, on the other side of that fear is the most amazing, indescribable joy. You know, at, because there you are, this little tiny speck in this massive creation that is just horizon to horizon, unbroken. And you can see all the works of humanity really tiny on the ground below you. Because normally we go out around 14,000 feet. And at 14,000 feet, every time I exit an airplane, a little voice in the back of my head says, 82 seconds because I know I'm reminding myself that in 82 seconds, no ifs, ands, or buts, I will die unless I do something very right. And so that's why the cover of the book, this photo, is the photo that it is because here I am. This is at 5,000 feet. I'm headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. And I've got that beautiful, the beautiful clouds and the sun on the horizon and all that. And this tells the story of everything that I do. Because what am I doing? First, I'm in street clothes. So no helmet, no jumpsuit, nothing like that. I look like an absolutely, quote unquote, normal guy thrust into an abnormal situation. And that's a lot of times the way we feel when we get diagnosed. We feel like the bottom has dropped out of our world and we're in free fall. So there I am. I'm at 5,000 feet. That's 27 seconds from impact. And I have both of my hands up to my forehead like this. And I'm about to sweep them out in a broad gesture. And every skydiver in the world will recognize that signal. It's called the wave off. Because what I am doing in that moment is I am warning everyone in my airspace, I am about to take action to save myself. I'm about to deploy my parachute in the face of certain death, 27 seconds, less than a TV commercial, I will die, but I am actively choosing life. And that's what I want people to understand. It all begins with, in the face of overwhelming circumstances, actively choosing life. You know, and, and as you're talking about that, you know, one of my favorite quotes, uh, and I don't even know who said it, but uh, because I don't, I read so much, I forget who says what. But I understand. One of the quotes was, you know, everything you want is on the other side of fear. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people are so afraid to take action, you know, and like a lot of people, you know, like my T-shirt says, you know, today I decide um, mm -hmm. the three most important words in English language are today I decide, because once you decide, then all you have to do is act upon it. And I think a lot of people don't make any decisions and they definitely don't yeah. act. Right. And if you and if you don't make the decisions and you don't act on it. 
life is going to continue around you and the world will make your decisions for you. So you've got to understand that, yeah, you got to decide, but then you've got to do something. And you bring up fear. And, and see, for me, going back to skydiving wasn't just about reclaiming that childhood dream. It was about, I had come to the point in my life where the thing that terrified me, the thing that I was most afraid of was my own body. Because I had ended up in circumstances where, you know, I suddenly I'm paralyzed and I'm on the floor and I can't move. And, you know, my, my brain doesn't work and, and I'm, I'm living with overwhelming chronic pain that just leaves me curled up in a ball and, and all the things. I've got more than 30 symptoms that come along with my multiple sclerosis and, and chronic pain, chronic fatigue, chronic confusion. Yeah, those are parts of it, but there are, you know, another 30 that come and go. And I had been betrayed by my body in so many creative, unexpected ways that I was terrified of doing anything because I, you know, I had, I had had so much experience with failure. And that was after, you know, as you mentioned to begin with, you know, I was, I was a pretty high achieving type A kind of guy to begin with. And I didn't have any problem going out and doing those things. And fear wasn't really a part of my lexicon. And suddenly my whole life was about fear. And so coming back to skydiving was about putting myself in a position where I was going to use my wonky body in a circumstance that would terrify most people where I'm headed to the earth at 120, maybe 200 miles an hour, I am going to use my body to save myself every time. And then I'm going to stand up a landing on target and I'm going to go back and do it again. So in 2019, I went back and I got my A license and my B license and logged about 140 jumps. And I set myself a bigger goal. In 2020, I said... I'm going to become a serious skydiver. And what that really means in the discipline is, you know, in the sport, it's, it's passing 500 jumps. Because 500 jumps is where you're eligible for all the licensing in the sport. You're eligible for professional ratings. I got my coach rating as I went along as well. And so what that meant was in 2020, if I was going to do that, I was going to have to log better than one jump a day on average through the entire year. And I logged on 370 jumps in 2020. And this is doing something that is inherently stressful. And the first thing they tell you with MS is avoid stress. Well, I want to choke the living snot out of every well-meaning professional who tells us to avoid stress because that's not it. Life is stressful. And a lot of the good things that we want in life are stressful. It's called eustress, good stress, not distress, bad stress. And they are together right there at what I call the edge. And the edge is a ratio. It's a ratio between the capacity you can deliver at this moment 
and the demand of the circumstance in front of you. And if that demand's a little higher, then you're going to fail because you can't deliver the capacity. But if your capacity is a little higher, then if they're real close, we're at the edge, but we're going to succeed. And this is some of the most beautiful experiences we have. And they're physical challenges, they're mental, they're emotional, they're social challenges. If we don't allow ourselves to get back out in the world and visit those challenges, and then afterward, allow ourselves to come back home to our home, to our safe place, and rest and relax and recover and nourish and all these things, and then go back out, we will never grow. And if we're not growing, we're dying. You know, and I love that. And and I think that once somebody graduates college or starts getting into the um, business world, it stops. We kind of stop challenging ourselves. Uh, we kind of like there's a saying that I love. It says, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, who would ever thought that this ninth grade dropout? would be able to have a, a nationwide show and a two-time author. Uh, but if I never took that step to be like, all right, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try it. Um, you know, I've already been run over by a Humvee. Uh, I didn't plan on living past the age of 25 anyway. So, you know, now this is all gravy. So now I want to yeah. start pushing the envelope. And I think a lot of people are putting away the envelope instead of pushing the envelope as they get older. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And I knew the value of this sort of thing, but I had taken my life to a place because of all the issues with MS, I had pulled myself back. And and I'm not joking when I say living systems and humans are living systems. If we are not growing, we are atrophying. Yeah. Because your system is pulling back and saying, oh, we don't need to be able to provide this kind of capacity. Mm -hmm. So going back to skydiving, for me, that was not just the childhood dream, not just the challenge, but I knew I was going to suck at it. Because my body was, you know, not something. Skydiving is something that, you know, I'm twice as old as most skydivers and they don't have a neurodegenerative condition. And, and so I knew that I was going to have to cultivate that beginner's mindset and that humility and, and to, to honestly face failure after failure after failure on my way to growing that edge. And it was tough sometimes, but I managed to do it. And, and I'm still growing as a skydiver now. And by the way, there are no perfectly good airplanes. <laughs> but, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you know like you said, you, it takes 85 seconds, you know. But I'm thinking that once you hit the ground, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you, you get up and you're like, yeah. And then you're like, if I can beat this shit, I can beat anything. And, you know, I'm totally. sure pump and you're like, you know, if I can, if I can survive that, I can survive anything. And I'm sure that gets you go through a lot of the down days that you do have because nobody has every day a great day. Oh, without a doubt. And, and, and you know, just, just to, you know, to reaffirm that if you demonstrate to yourself 
that you are the kind of person who can repeatedly fling your body at the earth and then scoff at death in the face of gravity and then pack it up and do it again. That gives you a big swing in confidence that you can carry into the rest of your life. And I'm not suggesting that everybody jump out of an airplane. What I am suggesting is that everybody needs to find the regular edges that they can learn and grow at and that give them that sense of agency and accomplishment and success in their life. And not all of my edges are way out there at terminal velocity. You know, there's some mornings where it's difficult for me to get my hands to work properly. And an edge is me figuring out a way to get the meds into my hand and into my mouth. And and that's a big freaking accomplishment at that point. But, well, but an edge me, is an edge. And it reminds me of a book that uh, one of my friends wrote. His name is James Clear. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yep. But I'm thinking about what you're talking about, um, because obviously you probably pack your own shoot, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, I'm trying to think of the parallels that in our life, you know, like he says in the book, you know, 40 percent of whatever we do every day is habits. So yeah, yeah, yeah. really packing your own suit, you're packing your own parachute for success or for failure with your, um, you know, your attributes and your daily routines, your morning routines and your evening routines. Do you agree? Very much so. Very much so. Like, like for me every morning, you know, the things that get me going in the morning are I get up around five o'clock. And the first thing I do is I I visit the critters. I take the dog for a walk. I go out. I enjoy the weather, whatever it is. And then I come in. I have veggie sludge and a protein shake and some supplements, the meds I need to take. I meditate. I hit the weights and I row. And then I write for a little while. And so that's the first couple of hours of my day. And, and that is inviolate. And I, I do that. I keep that routine. I do something to challenge my, my, my emotions and my spirit with meditation. And, and I do something to challenge my body with the weightlifting and the rowing. I do something to challenge my mind with the writing. and. I, I, I commune with nature in a couple of ways. And, and, then, and then, only then, do I check my emails? Do I check my phone? Do I do anything else? Now, for me, you know, like I, I've, for, for the last six months, I've been on a mindset kick. Mm-hmm. I decided to go way back. So, I mean, I went back to Mr. Carnegie. You know, because everybody talks oh, yeah. about you know, everybody talks about, you know, his credit, you know, who, who he taught, but I wanted to go back to the teacher. And it seems that the mind has not really changed that much in a hundred years. No. That, oh, you no, know, the mind hasn't changed in thousands of years. So, but what, you know, your mind is 
really, you know, it's a healer. It's, and, but a lot of it is, you know, they say, you know, you put junk in, you get junk out. Sure. So, you know, if you're listening, you know, obviously I'm talking to a doctor. So, um, you know, we have that reticular activating system in our, in our brains, you know, if people don't realize that, you know, our, our brain is kind of like a Facebook page. You know, if you keep on hitting like, like, like on all the positive stuff, your brain starts searching for it. But same thing in the negative. So mm -hmm. talk to us about changing your mindset. Because sometimes when you come out, like I, everybody knows I have diabetes, you know, sometimes a lot of diabetics are, they're just waiting for the next symptom. Instead of looking right. at so positive, saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be healed. Um, you know, I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm whole. They think of the negative stuff instead of the positive stuff. So talk to us about met, positive mental attitude. Well, so I've got like a gazillion things that are, I've got popcorn head going on right now. So uh, here's the first, the very first thing is if you are miserable and you are always miserable, please don't take this the wrong way, but you are the bottleneck. You have to actually work to stay miserable. And the reason why is if we look at both all the research, you know, over 100 years of research on this now, and if we look at some pretty insightful uh, ancient traditions, like the idea of the Buddhist monkey mind, uh, what we understand is that our minds are always changing. And mind is not brain, okay? Yeah. Just like behaviors are what bodies do, mind is what brain does. So our mind is like the weather and it's always changing and it's always changing. And sometimes it'll be happy, sunny weather and sometimes it'll be cloudy, stormy weather, but it's always changing. So if you've got this one negative thought that keeps dominating your mind, you are actively at some level, you're not doing this consciously, it's not a choice on your part, but you have habituated yourself into constantly clinging to that negative idea. And all of us have a propensity to fixate more on the negative. It's called automatic vigilance. And our ancestors were adapted that way because it kept them alive because the negative things were the things that were likely to kill us and the positive things weren't. So we pay more attention to those things naturally. However, we don't fixate on them naturally. We naturally, once we allow ourselves to get out of our own way and, and to say, yes, I acknowledge that negative feeling, that negative idea, now I'm going to let it go and see what the next thing that comes through is. And the next thing that comes through may be that thing again, but you're going to practice letting it go again. And eventually something else will come in because we, what we have to understand is that identity is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Humans are storytelling creatures. It is maybe the most human thing that we do. Yeah. And the most important story we each tell is our own identity. 
And what our identity is trying to do is they're trying to make sense of what I call our society of mind. So inside our, our minds, we've got not only these ancient primal kind of fear-driven pain or pleasure voices that are that are coming up at us and trying to make decisions for us that are really loud and really excitable, but we also have other voices that we've developed over the time in, you know, that we've been around. So other roles, other facets to our identity. And our identity is how we're trying to make sense of all this and pull it together into a unified whole. So the voices, you, you, what you have to understand is that some of those voices are going to be really loud and they're going to be really insistent, like the voices of fear, the voices of pain, the voices of addiction. Those voices are going to be really, really loud. And you can't stomp on them. You can't clamp them down. You can't shut them up. It's like trying to shut up a little kid when they're really excited about something. You can't do that. And if you keep focusing on trying to do that, you will get locked into this constant battle with those negative voices. Instead, what you have to do is say, yes. You have to acknowledge it. And you say, I can acknowledge you, but I don't have to be driven by you. Because I've got all these other voices in my head that are more positive and maybe have a longer timeline and are, are the things that I want to be driving what I'm doing. So it's cultivating your awareness. It's cultivating acceptance. But acceptance doesn't mean that you have to approve of it or use it or do it. Yep, you know, I love that. And, you know, I, I read a book uh, uh, by Mr. Tim Ferriss. And, um, and I kept on hearing NLP, NLP, and NLP. And now it seems like it's everywhere. And it's amazing that once you start focusing and start reading and start learning and listening to people like yourself that, you know, you can change the wiring in your brain. You know, it's kind of, um, for me, you know, like every day I have, I, I believe in self-talk. I have five things I say to myself every day, at least 20 or 30 times. And if I do hear something negative from my past, one of those things will pop up and take it away. Kind of like they fight each other. But my, my good words are overtaking my bad memories. So I, I, I consider it's kind of like taking the old cassette tape out. That's how old I am. Mm -hmm. You know, taking the old cassette tape out and putting another tape in. You know, do you well, what we have to Yeah, what we have to understand is that humans are always learning. Even when you aren't paying attention, you are still learning. And so if you sit on the couch for three hours watching the boob tube, you know, scarfing down a bunch of Cheetos, your system is learning. That's all you need to be capable of doing. So learning comes in two ways, either growth learning, which happens at the edge, and that's when you challenge yourself. Maybe you succeed, maybe you fail, but you've challenged yourself and then you allow yourself the opportunity to rest, relax, recover, nourish, and so forth. 
and that triggers growth. The other way we learn is habituation. And habituation happens down here in our comfort zone. And it's about making everything as automatic and as unconscious and as easy as possible. So if you are not up here learning, and you can't be there all the time, then you are down here learning. And what we understand now, you know, it used to be even 20 years ago, we, the common wisdom was that eventually neuroplasticity stops. Now, of course, we know that that's silly. Neurogenesis and neuroplasticity are happening until we die. We're building new neurons where we are growing and, and reconnecting new neurons, which is the physical, the brain foundation that mind is happening within. We're doing that until we die. So we have no excuse not to learn and grow. But, and here's the important thing, one of the fundamental facets of our personality, and there are five, maybe six of them, but the one that's important here is called openness. Okay, and, and it's a dimension between how open are you or how closed are you to new experiences. And we know that a healthier attitude is openness. So some of us, either by genetic luck of the draw or through our experience up to this point in life, have become more closed. And, and what we have to understand is that first we have to accept the idea that, no, I really can learn and I really can change and it really can be better. And then we have to be humble and we have to give ourselves some grace and we have to understand that there's a lot of failure here at the edge, but that failure is right next to the success. And we, we, are, we are learning, learning, learning because when we're learning something new, consistency is the last thing that happens. You will succeed, fail, succeed, fail at the edge, and then and you won't be consistent. And, and you have to understand that you have to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, because what you're doing is you're, is you're transitioning from the growth learning to the habituation. And, you know, and that's I, where I, the consistency comes from. I love that. You know, I was listening to an interview. I think uh, a gentleman, he, he used to coach Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. And they said, mm -hmm. uh, I think Michael was doing a commercial with Larry Bird. And it was for one of the commercials for, I think, Coke or Pepsi. And he had to miss a free throw. And he hit like nine in a row. And they're like, no, you're supposed to miss him. He's like, mentally, I can't miss him because I'm so programmed yeah. to have the shot the same way every single time. And he says, because I consistently shoot a thousand free throws a day. So mm -hmm. is that talking to something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and what I want people to understand is that we're not just learning physical activities. We're learning cognitive. We're learning emotionally. We're learning socially. Our relationships 
are also living and they are learning, they are either growing or atrophying. And all of these principles, all of these apply. And, and if you are trying to, here's another thing that really discourages people. If you want to change a behavior, well, if you look at the research, and I have, and I went through it for my book and for some of the courses that I teach, there are 150 different ways to change a behavior. All of them work for someone. Only some of them will work for you. And only and and some of them that work right now will no longer work for you in six months or six years because you're going to change and your goals are going to change and your environment is going to change. So don't get discouraged if you're having a difficult time with that change. You are still capable of changing. You just need to try another strategy. And so yeah. one of the things that I do in my work is help people analyze themselves better and understand well and connect them with for your kind of person in your kind of circumstance wanting your kind of change these are the most likely techniques you should use and then monitoring that and saying oh okay if you're not on the trajectory we would expect here's the next most likely thing for someone like you so yeah. there's not such a discouraging process of just haphazard guessing and you know and i and i totally get it because you know I don't struggle with alcohol anymore, you know, because my mindset has been, I drink, I die. Next. <laughs> but I struggle with sugar being a diabetic and I've been struggling for years. So it's like I can, one thing I can just mindset, change it. I'm done. I don't even don't want it. Don't crave it. And then the next one, I'm, it's a constant battle. And I can't use that same say, oh, if I eat sugar, I'm going to die. I, I can't get my head around it. So, you know, yeah. I understand you could be have one problem and have multiple different answers. You know, once in, in the 90s, when I because normally I'm a pretty fit guy and I've always, you know, prided myself on on keeping myself in as good a shape as I can, mainly because I feel better when I'm in the world, because brains work better in bodies that move yep. full stop. And and so. Uh, I had an exacerbation to my MS before I was diagnosed and it was really bad and I lost most of my habits. And in the span of two years, I gained 120 pounds. Wow. I went from 120, you know, I went from a 27 inch waist to a 46 inch waist. And, and then the exacerbation passed and I got back to my normal habits and lost it again over the next two years and have kept it off since then. Okay. So now, like I said, um, I loved your book so much. I read it twice. Um, and I think it's a very easy read, very uh, digestible. I did. I, I guess I, my wife must've been peeling onions or something because some tears came out of my eye. Uh, what you're talking about, you know, losing your wife and, and losing your dog. So talk to us about writing your book. And how, you know, if there's a veteran out there, first responder that is kind of struggling with some chronic issues, um, you know, struggling maybe with a PTSD 
traumatic brain injury, depression, anxiety. Tell us about your book and how it's been helping others. So I see it's been helping a lot of people. So a couple things, and and thank you so much for your your glowing response to it. Uh, you know, first of all, I I am not a veteran myself, and uh, but I am. This goes back to the genealogy thing. My dad is a Vietnam vet. He was there during Tet. He saw the worst of it, and I am only the second male pain going back to the Revolutionary War who did not see combat service. Wow. <laughs> so so I have always been very self-conscious of this fact that, you know, I, being my age, we just really didn't have a war during my youth. It was, you know, we had, we had Desert Storm. And if you weren't already in at the time, then, yeah. you know, that was, it was just there and gone. But, but I've very, been very conscious of that, that I have been privileged to be only the second male pain since the revolution, not to do military service. So I've, I've, I've got a lot of empathy for that. And I had a lot of students uh, who are veterans. And so, and with MS, a lot of the symptoms that I experience overlap quite a bit with traumatic brain injury. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I am dealing with post-traumatic distress and I like calling it post-traumatic distress because post-traumatic stress disorder, A, it's distress, it's bad stress. It's not, you know, it's not generic stress and B, it's not a disordered response. It is an entirely natural response to an overwhelming emotional and moral injury. Yep. And and so so I'm I'm kind of a big fan. I really wish we'd stop calling it PTSD and call it post-traumatic distress. Anybody, I call it post-traumatic growth. Um, yeah. For yeah. me, you know, because I think you know a disorder is a disease, you know, but trauma is something that happened to you. Yeah, and 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 you know what uh, the way I explain it, what I want people to understand, it's in the book and stuff, is that you know so so if you've got your capacity right here, and here's the demand, okay, now you're a little bit more than than what the circumstance is is delivering to you, but it's a stretch, and that is a flow experience. Those are those wonderful growth experiences. Once your uh, demand goes higher. Now this is overwhelmed and you're going to fail. Once it goes higher, this is injury. Yeah. And it, and it should be treated like a cognitive emotional injury, not like a disease. Yeah. Because what do we do when we're physically injured? We give it treatment, but then there's rehab and and nourishment and rest and all those things same thing happens with those mental and emotional and social injuries as well and then you go beyond injury and now we're up here and this is trauma yeah and and that's how those things relate to one another and a lot of people like before like when we were just hopping on and just getting to know each other and bsing beforehand if you know if somebody would just log on right now and they just seen me and you they'd be like oh you know they look normal you know they look okay mm -hmm. but they won't realize there's times when like 
I'll be sitting there at the kitchen table trying to say the word ball, but all I can yeah. say is that round thing that the kids play with. Or right there too. I have that's another one of my symptoms with MS. I have I have difficulty with words. Uh, or I have you know, and... I have to I'm reading a book, I gotta read it three, four times in order to get mm -hmm. it. But like you said, it's an invisible injury. So a lot of people, you know, won't see it unless you know they they know you or they see you out and they see why is you know he can't why is he knocking the people on his right side well because i'm blind but you can't mm -hmm. see it. so yeah it's, it's like well you don't look sick yeah so uh, talk to us about the invisible injuries and and how your book talks about that yeah uh what i want people fundamentally to understand is that 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 relationship that i was talking about to the edge so habit way down here you know boredom even below that engagement flow and then now we're getting into trouble now this is overwhelming injury and trauma this is a really natural cycle that people need to understand and we need to understand what are the limits we are able to deliver in this moment and it's not just cognitive it is emotional, behavioral, social, operational, all those things. Because if, if, for example, cognitively you could do it and behaviorally you could do it, but emotionally you can't, that's still a real injury. It's a real bottleneck. It's, it's just as real and it gets in the way just as much as anything else. And, and it needs to be supported and treated, and we need the help to get past that injury and recover and regrow, just like we do with a broken arm. And, and we have to look at it in those, you know, in that way. And we have to look at relationships in that way, because our relationships get injured in that way as well. And they need that kind of support and rehabilitation and nourishment to grow and and knit back together and and improve you know like i talk about in my book a hero's journey is you know like i'm there's no way i'm even close to being a doctor i'm only a ninth grade dropout but from you know talking to all the people that i've talked to you know i found that you know trauma usually happens between you know, when a, when an adult acts out, it's usually because of trauma that happened between the ages of three and 13. Um, then you add war to the mix, in our cases. Then you add alcohol to the mix, and it becomes a perfect storm. And yeah. nobody can tell you how to get out of the perfect storm unless they've been there. And I think that's what your book is able to help because you've been there, done that, you're still doing it. You know, well, and, you know, this was actually the most difficult thing for me to write about in writing this book, because I actually wrote this book twice. I wrote it once and it was like. Eight part science, one part my story. And that's because that's where I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. That's how I protect myself in the world. I am the disinterested scientific observer. But. You know, I got some feedback on it and everybody was like, this, you know, the 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 science is great. You know, your research is really great on this, but we need to know your own story. We need to know your story. 
And I knew that, but I had to be told it a few times. And so the book that, you know, the, the, what I did was and then I rewrote everything and it's about two thirds science, one third my story. Because what I really want people to understand when they engage with me and your life lived well and, and the book or the classes or listen to my podcast or any of the things that we do is that, yeah, I'm a doctor. I, I, I do have, you know, I've spent 30 years researching people. I do have that expertise, but I have spent decades living this as someone who is diagnosed and as someone who spent years and years and years as a caregiver. And I can fundamentally tell you that as educated as I was, as, as you know, as able to be the external fly on the wall and say, oh, yeah, this is what's happening to me. That's a different set of muscles. And and I had to, as I said before, get really humble and, and go back to my beginner mindset and develop not the knowing muscles of being the observer but the understanding and the doing muscles of living and succeeding in those circumstances. And, you know, those are different. Um, you're, the reason why I really like you, I, 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 and I hope this turns into a generational relationship, is Me you're too. very relatable. You know, a lot of times people on social media, um, they're using all the filters they don't have bad days. Their hair is always right. That's not real life. And yeah. eventually, you know, I think one of the books I'm reading is by Russell Brunson. Um, <laughs> and he talks about how you have to be real. You know, people have to, you have yeah. to be relatable. And I think, you know, one of those things, like when I was reading your book uh, and now I'm, I'm listening to your voice, it's the same. You know, like mm. I had a friend of mine, his name Steve Sims. He wrote a book called Blue Fishing. And his and he had it ghost written, and then his wife read it and said, "You can't put this out. This is bullshit. It doesn't sound like you." And mm -hmm. so, you know, so when I wrote my book, you know, it's kind of like you can read it because it sounds like I, who I am. But I think a lot of people, you know, even though we're struggling, we kind of put out that everything's okay. I'm good. I, I got this, and we well, really don't got this. That yeah. is one of the kindest compliments you could pay to me. And I truly, I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and it's really important to me. Every, every word that I write, I mean, and it probably is because of my background as an academic, you know, it's, it's, it's every word that I write comes from me and, and it always will. And sometimes that means that I don't get as much produced as I would like to get produced because I'm doing this with chronic fatigue and chronic pain and all those other things. And I'm not as fast as I used to be, but it is really crucial for me, for people to understand that this is my authentic voice and that I really did live going to the point where I couldn't see a way forward. And I've gotten myself, not to a place where everything is is sunshine and roses and unicorns and and rainbows that's not what it's about it's about finding 
a good life and building it actively every day and sometimes failing and and still learning and growing and being grateful for this gift that is life and and that's you know back to the skydiving that's what i love about the skydiving it's like yeah whenever you come down from skydiving you do you have that big king kong confidence that yeah i can do this but the more important thing is i feel so humble in the face of such a massive creation and i feel so connected and and i feel so grateful because i chose life again and and i just want to help people find whatever their way of choosing life each day is well you got me pumped up so um i just wanted to say thank you um now you have a book out uh, i want you to talk about how we find your book you have a podcast I, which i if, if your numbers have gone up i'm taking credit for it because i've listened cool. to almost every episode um so cool. talk about your how we find your book and your podcast yeah i've tried to make it really easy for everybody just go to your life lived well dot co co and they can find um you know a, they can get a a free 100 pages of the book to download and see if they like it and it's something they're interested in and and see where to get it and all those things because that's changing as we get more outlets for it um there's my podcast there's there's a page where there's uh, links to all the guest appearances that that i've been so fortunate to be able to do and and to meet wonderful new people like you and i hope you're my friend now uh, you, you got me you got you got me and, as thank you so much and and there's a schedule of my seminars I, i've got regular webinars that i do on 16 different topics uh from and and they're all about focusing on the cognitive behavioral social and environmental tools that we can use to improve our quality of life and health because i'm not an md i'm a phd i'm the kind of doctor who can help you with all the stuff surrounding the the medical challenge that you can't get away from and that medicine can't cure for you so uh, those are there there's the blog and you know all that stuff so if you go to yourlifelivedwell.co and then you can, there's the links right there on the right at the top of the page where you can follow uh, Your Life Lived Well on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff. All right. So last question I have. Um, I interviewed uh, one of the Iron Chefs last week, um, Simon Ooh, cool. from the Food Network. And um, cool. he was telling me, you know, in the last two years since COVID started, we've lost over a hundred thousand restaurants. So yeah. in, the, in the United States, we have a lot of people that are um, unemployed or driving Uber, DoorDash, just trying to put food on the table. So if I mm -hmm. ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody that's listening to our show right now to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. 
So I'm going to ask a two-part question. If somebody is struggling with their physical health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get some help? And second of all, I think the most important, if somebody is struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to maybe get some help and some clarity? Okay, so the physical help part of it. Um, now, that's trickier because my answer there is sort of it depends on what challenges you're facing. However, you know, like, a lot of times, you know, guys will get out of the military and girls, you know, we're, we were like the, the most physically fit alcoholics ever, sure. you know, sure. and, you know, and we're running six miles a day. We're, you know, and then you get out three years later, you're 50 pounds overweight, um, right. high, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high sugar. And we don't know where to start. So how do well, we start changing our change? But this is this is going to apply to both, okay. both the physical change and the mental change. And it's going to start in a place that people are probably going to scoff when I say this. But I'm but I'm I am so serious. I'm even leaning in toward the camera. I'm so serious about this. And that is be kinder to yourself. So many of us are locked into this relationship with this jack weasel in our own head who is so awful to us. And if anybody else treated you that way, you would cut them off. And yet, you're stuck with yourself. So what I'm saying is be kinder to yourself. And, and yeah, you may have failed at something. Big deal. We're human. You found your edge. So back off just a little bit and try again. And, and see where your edge really is right now so that you can then start growing it. But when we are kinder to ourselves, we are more open to the change and the growth. And not only that, we allow ourselves so one of the things, if you are always griping at yourself, if you are always berating yourself, then you're always triggering your acute stress response. And, you know, in our bodies, we've got this sympathetic nervous system, which is the acute stress response, which is the quote unquote fight or flight response. And it's really a lot more than fight or flight. It's really freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright, faint. I mean, there's a, a bunch of Fs going on. I call it the effort response. And, and, and to balance that, we've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is sometimes called the rest and digest or the freed and breed system. And this is how, this is how we relax and how we repair, and how we get good sleep, and we nourish ourselves, and all those things. Now, here's the thing. If your acute stress response is triggered, if this sympathetic nervous response is firing, then your parasympathetic response will never be allowed to engage. Because when the two are in conflict, the sympathetic nervous system is about saving yourself. It will always win. So being kinder to yourself 
is really the first step in allowing that sympathetic nervous system to disengage, which then makes space for your parasympathetic nervous system to kick in and for you to truly start relaxing and recovering. So I'm not joking. Be kinder to yourself. And then you will find that it's a lot easier for you to meet the world and other people with kindness and with patience and with grace as well. Wow, Doc. I got to tell you, this has been probably one of my favorite conversations of all time. Um, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm so grateful that we got to connect um, and I've learned so much today. You know, for me, I, I love being a student. You know, I'm a 53-year-old student. I'm always learning. So I just want to say thank you. I want to uh, thank our sponsors. Guys, if you get a chance, pick up my book. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. It's my story, but at the end of each chapter, it tells a learning point from my life of what not to do. And, and the last two chapters are what depression looks like. It's not what you think it looks like. And Amen. What, and what addiction looks like and not what you think it looks like. So it's also a teaching book. So if you pick it up, um, if you pick it up, it's 1097. It's available. I'll drop the link. Um, I, I will add in something special for anybody that picks it up. And I also want to thank Carrie Marie Beavers of Soldier Girl Coffee. Um, she's helping women veterans and veterans help get, get them healthy, get their energy levels up. But they're all, she's also employing veterans. So I just want to say thank you for supporting me from day one. Doc, and guys, make sure you pick up that book. Um, like I said, I got it upstairs. I read it twice. Now that I've had them on, I'm probably going to read it a third time. So I just want to say, Doc, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Richard. And be well. Yep. And guys, remember, uh, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. I'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.